to find a way to save the day. Let this be the hour to speak truth to power. Hi, everybody. I'm Charles Ortlib. Welcome to my weekly show, Truth to Power. That was Chris Davidson singing Truth to Power, a song I wrote with him. Chris is a British singer-songwriter who was discovered by Freddie Mercury's manager. You can find that song and all the other songs I've written with him on iTunes, Spotify, and all the streaming services. Truth to Power is also the title of my book, which is a history of the AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome epidemic, and my newspaper, New York Native, which I ran from 1980 until we went out of business in 1997. On my show, I explore a lot of the unresolved stories we covered about the politics and science of AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome. And if you think these issues only affect a tiny minority of people, please stay tuned because you have some surprises coming. This week, I'm presenting a fascinating interview I did with Dr. Jose Montoya, who is a professor of medicine specializing in infectious diseases and geographic medicine at the Stanford University Medical Center. He is a much celebrated researcher in the area of chronic fatigue syndrome research. He is famous for being a very nice guy. He has a great bedside manner and patients seem to love him. He recently rocked the medical and scientific communities with a paper titled, Cytokine Signature Associated with Disease Severity in Chronic Fatigue Syndrome Patients. This was published in the volume 114, number 34, issue of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. Here is the significance of the research as summarized by the journal. Quote, Myalgic encephalomyelitis chronic fatigue syndrome devastates the lives of millions of people and has remained a mystery illness despite decades of research. It has long been suspected that inflammation is central to its pathogenesis. Although only two cytokines were found to be different, in ME-CFS patients compared with controls, 17 cytokines correlated with ME-CFS severity. 13 of these cytokines are pro-inflammatory and may contribute to many of the symptoms these patients experience for several years, unquote. I have never conducted a phone interview quite like this one. I was a little surprised that he agreed to do it. He had consented to do a half-hour interview, but he stayed on for longer in order to answer all my questions. I hope you will listen to the whole interview because I think he makes some interesting news about the causation of chronic fatigue syndrome at the end of the interview. Hello, Dr. Montoya. Yeah, hi, Charles. Thank you for uh, calling me um, and, sure. and agreeing to be on my show. Before we get started, I just wanted to ask you, are, are you aware of the work that I did at my newspaper, New York Native? We, um, we covered chronic fatigue syndrome for 10 years from 1988 until 1997, and uh, I had a reporter covering it on a weekly basis. I was just curious whether you are aware of that, or so you know my background. I wasn't aware, Charles, and I apologize for that. I've been embedded too much into the work that we are doing here at the university, so I don't actually have the time, though I wish, to follow what transpires in the media. Oh, oh, that, oh that's okay. I just, I just wanted to know, you know, um, what you know about me and what I've already done. And you know, I published three books on chronic fatigue syndrome by a woman named Nina Ostrom, and she, uh, she was our reporter, and um, she did a, a book 
um, called, she called it America's Biggest Cover-Up about, you know, how serious chronic fatigue syndrome is. And it actually sold quite well. So I'm pretty, you know, I'm pretty familiar with the territory. I just wanted <laughs> you to know that up, up front. Um, so anyway, you've become one of the most beloved doctors and scientists in the field of chronic fatigue syndrome research. Um, you've given patients hope because you've had some remarkable success in treating patients. You're also celebrated for your research showing that 17 cytokines are dysregulated in chronic fatigue syndrome. And you've given the world what looks like a very reliable test for chronic fatigue syndrome. And yet, many years ago, you were told you would end up homeless if you pursued chronic fatigue syndrome research. Are you afraid you could still end up on the street these days? <laughs> That's a great way to begin. Uh, um, you know, me, it, I'm sorry, ahead. go ahead. <laughs> it's great, it's great, it's great. Um, anything that is worthwhile in this life and certainly in research uh, um, takes, you know, carries risk and and the higher what is at stake the the higher like for example here was to um bring down the dogma that that this disease was a you know a creation of the patient's imagination that that that's that's what i was at stake is bringing that dogma down so the the the, the higher is at stake the the higher is the risk um and yes, I went against the advice of my beloved mentor, who I treasure still, um, when he said, you know, you are committing academic suicide. And look at that guy. We, we were in Paris uh, at, a, at a meeting um, and we were waiting for a taxi. And then he said he pointed to me to to a guy who was really drunk with a bottle of wine in his hands and said, you're going to end up like that guy if you work on chronic fatigue syndrome. But but it's really um taking the risk, what, what makes our lives worthwhile and, you know, as humans is really, that's it. And to me, that risk what, what was worthwhile because of what it was at stake also because the patients, uh, they, they were so sick. What, what drove me into this was seeing the suffering in these patients. I couldn't put in my mind together a, a, a person with such an amazing life before the illness and this is the story of all these patients. They have lives that are full of, of work and educational activities and joy and social life. And, and suddenly all that is brought down by the disease. But, so I couldn't put together the two. But even lazy, even lazy people can get chronic fatigue syndrome, right? <laughs> and I'm <laughs> well, you know, what is being lazy, right? So right. in the United States, we have this horrible, you know, way of defining life by, by what we do, by our jobs. It's, it's really the wrong way of defining life. I have to go to Europe every year for work, um, mostly France, and I love what they have there where, yes, there are jobs, and yes, they have to get up every day, and, but, but there is another notion, there's another way of, of seeing life. So anyway, so by, by, by United States standards, yes, lazy people do get crazy. <laughs> well, let me ask you, uh, do you, you think- You are great, I'm, I'm enjoying this. Oh, oh, great. Um, do, do you think chronic fatigue syndrome is a public health emergency? It is, and it has been. Um, I think that it exploded uh, to epidemic proportions 
right at the same time where our beloved, you know, uh, other patients were being killed by the weak, by, by AIDS. So the two epidemics coincided in time in the early 80s. And I think that 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 was part of it, not 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 to justify what what was done to these MECFS patients. I have so many questions for you (laughs) about the relationship between those two, but we'll we'll wait a little bit for those. I wanted to just ask, like, how many years have you been seeing patients with chronic fatigue syndrome? Thirteen years um, and seven months and. and and it was yeah 13 years six months and and 23 days oh that's that's and amazing two hours. Okay. and two hours <laughs> boy you're really keeping track um are the, are, are the patients of all ages well i have the limitation that i'm not a pediatrician so i feel sad and bad that i don't have the skills to see let's say patients younger then I don't feel responsible seeing patients younger than 14. Or, um, and also the clinic at Stanford where we work has to be legally authorized to see children okay. younger than that. Okay. So it's a limitation. It's my limitation. How, how old is your oldest patient? Um, 70 plus, 73. Wow. And how long, how long have they had the illness? Or do you, do you recall? From oh, the, the oldest patients? Yes. Uh, f- 30 and 40, 30 years, is, 40 years is the patient with the longest duration that I have seen. Oh, wow. Um, what percentage are you, of your patients would you say are women? 70, 75%. Um, is, is chronic fatigue syndrome different in men? It's possibly different. It, it brings the same suffering. It has the same devastation. Right. But it may be different in the way that for example, uh, there is a significant number of women who have their disease significantly worsened by the menstrual period, by the menstrual cycle. So obviously we will not see that in men. The other um, is that when women get pregnant and they have CFS, a third of them, the disease improves significantly during pregnancy. There is another third that nothing happens and there is a third that gets worse. So. Um, there are biologically based uh, factors that make the disease different in men than women. And, and I think I will add one more. I think the way women are treated in, in certain societies very unfairly right. with lower opportunities, lower pay scales, that makes the disease worse for them. Well, I've been wondering whether CFS is, is gradually being paradigmed as primarily a disease of women, and then that is having an effect on uh, the willingness of men to even admit that they have chronic fatigue syndrome, and whether that the, the numbers are being skewed by that, that paradigm. Is that possible? Or I mean, I, I, I think that that's possible. I don't have the data to prove that that's the case, but I will say that in both ways, that that the um, sexist views that we have ingrained in our society, either overtly or subliminally or subconsciously, have made physicians, primarily males, but but also females, to see 
female patients with ME-CFS as, you know, more like, could this be part of their moods, part of their, you know, a hysterical component? And, and that was the view, by the way, in the 1800s and uh, where there is some evidence that there was chronic fatigue syndrome, but they were viewed view through those lenses. Right. So that's one thing. And then, and then on the male side, yes, it will make it more difficult for males to accept that they have a disease that they cannot fight. And I don't know if there are really good studies, and, and I, we certainly don't have them, that if it takes longer for a male to reach a provider or a female, uh, it looks like patients who have better socioeconomic status situation, they do reach the physician sooner. Um, and, and that's part probably applies to any of the other diseases, but it's amplified for for this disease because of the uh, skepticism among providers about their symptoms. So yes, I think that there is a there is a role there where the way you women are viewed that that but, but it doesn't explain why we see more women with MECFS. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that there are factors, barriers that women face that are different than men when they have the same illness. You know, um, I'm very interested in the virus HHV6. And, you know, my name is practically synonymous with the virus because my newspaper put that virus on the cover of, of my newspaper for like for 10 years. And... Um, I wanted to ask you, how much time have you spent actually studying that virus? Is that a big part of your work? Yes, and and um, I, I don't know how to quantitate the time spent on that, but I'm sure that that's not literally what you meant. But in the question, but but you know, we still have a significant component of our efforts. So so we in that recent publication, we were fortunate. As a as a teamwork, and everything that you see out of our group is is is, is teams, people, collaborators, right. central brains brainstorming. This is not the product of a single investigator, um, and and so in that, I, I hope that 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 we have settled for good for for history um, that this disease has an inflammatory component as as their symptoms correlated with those 17 cytokines and 13 of them were pro-inflammatory. But now we are trying to hunt, we are in, the, in, the, in a hunting process, literally, trying to find the triggers for that. What, what is perpetuating, what is, what, is, what is triggering and what is perpetuating that, that inflammation. And um, HSV6 is a prime suspect, so still is there, very high. Right. Uh, and. But also I have to share with you the other seven herpes viruses right. are also candidates. And, um, and, and and we have been also fortunate by not only the research and the things that are coming out, out of our group, but there is a significant group of patients, Charles, that unequivocally they have been sick five, 10, 20 plus years, and then they have tried numerous interventions and when they start our treatment pointed interventions, they, they, that, that is followed by a gradual but ultimately dramatic recovery, like back to normal kind of recovery. And, and I think that the world is not appreciating this. They, they, they are, people are not seeing it. Uh, and and it's, 
is 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 normal. It's expected that people keep writing. There is no, you know, the disease is poorly understood. There are no treatment. That's that's fine that they keep writing that, but they are not appreciating this mini revolution that that we are um, excited to be witnessing firsthand. And by the way, I'm sorry, but I didn't mean everybody, but a significant number portion of our patients are having those dramatic recoveries. They are basically many of them going back to normal. Like that patient in, if you Google ABC News, chronic fatigue syndrome Montoya, there is one patient of ours who is now fully employee and going to study at night and now is engaged with a fiance and she's looking for a life with work, fun, babies, family. Well, let me ask you this. In, in that patient that seems to be recovered, are the 17 cytokines that you identified as being dysregulated, are they suddenly all normal again in her? We, that- we, we, that's a beautiful point. We haven't done that study. So that study gave us amazing insight into the illness. The next step is to have an assay that can be done in the clinic where we can do that, where we can say, this is your profile before treatment and look at your profile after treatment. We, right. we have not done that, but that's the next step and we are seeking for funding for that. You know, I, I've started working my way through each one of those 17 cytokines and, and looking at what pathologies they're associated with. And first of all, the constellation of pathologies is kind of scary. <laughs> um, each one seems to be associated with something potentially very serious. Um, I, don't you, do you think that finding those 17 cytokines is going to help us paint a much clearer picture, you know, of the scope of this illness in a single patient, how, you know, what could happen to them, what is happening to them, um, that, you know, that, that we're suddenly going to have a, a much better definition of what chronic fatigue syndrome is um, because of where these cytokines are going to lead us. Absolutely. And uh, um, again, it's really great to talk to you. Um, the, um, yes, and, and, and also the, the other, so there are several doors that, that are being opened with, with, with those findings, and you pointed to those. Um, not only understanding at a more one-to-one level, like this group of cytokines are likely responsible or are responsible for these specific symptoms in our patients who have been saying that all along. You know, the patients, uh, the, the disease, MECFS has been whispering to us, pun intended, has been whispering to us what the disease is. We, we, it, it was not the disease not letting us see it. It was us with our deaf ears and narrow vision not being able to see it. So when those cytokines are, are found correlating with symptoms, yes, you start to say, you know, the patients complain of a lot of allergic symptoms, like hypersensitivity and reactions to drugs and to, to chemicals and to, to toxins and IL-4, IL-5, IL-13, they are classic cytokines for allergic reactions. So no wonder why they, they have all this. Um, but the other door that is open and, and this is something that um, that only few are seeing it with the paper, but that was the intention of 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 going to such a high impact journal. It was not fame or or, or, or brown 
brownie points at, at, at our academic institution, it was because if you see the inflammation that is there, that is painted there with those cytokines, then immediately the next step is what is the drug or the drugs that can counteract that inflammation? And then you could say, well, isn't that dangerous that you're going to try to try to treat the inflammation that is presented in those cytokines without knowing where it comes from? We right. do have we do have that paradigm in other inflammatory diseases. Nobody knows what causes multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, systemic lupus erythematosus, lupus, and many other inflammatory diseases. They, they're cause the ideology is not known yet we bring significant relief to those patients by treating that inflammation that they have you know in the different diseases so we are presenting to the world a paradigm where look at guys this is the inflammation in this disease let's start to find the right drugs for that inflammation so we bring relief to them i want to ask you about chronic fatigue syndrome and cancer um, isn't dysregulation of some of those cytokines associated with an increased risk of cancer, of various forms of cancer? Absolutely. Um, especially, we, we are very excited. Um, We're very excited about transforming growth factor beta, TGF beta, one of the cytokines that is the only one of two that were found significantly different between cases and controls just just looking at the two groups and that's what by far most investigators have done for 35 years just comparing the um, cases with the healthy controls period um, and and very few things have been found different so but that's one of the ones that was found different TGF beta and TGF beta separate from from C, from MECFS research completely separate from that has been found to be a key cytokine for lymphoma, associated with lymphoma and lymphoma severity, like a cancer promoter. And long and behold, we have this other separate data that points to, in patients with MECFS, there is this higher risk of, of lymphoma. So we are proposing actually that, that this cytokine may be the link between MECFS immune dysregulation or inflammation and lymphoma. Are you getting support from the National Cancer Institute because of this? Not yet. Uh, we do have an investigator there who has approached us and who is working with us, and we're excited about it. Um, but we don't have yet, you know, specifics. So we are in, in conversations, correct. Okay. okay. I'd like to ask you about some of the statements of Nancy Klimas and Judy Mikovits, and you know both of these researchers, I believe. Right. Yes. Okay. In, in a, as you know, in a paper in 1992, a group of scientists that included Nancy Klimas said that chronic fatigue syndrome is, quote, a form of acquired immunodeficiency. And, and you may also know that Judy Mikovits, um, who worked at the National Cancer Institute with one of Robert Gallo's colleagues, has called it and continues to call it non-HIV AIDS. She says chronic fatigue syndrome is non-HIV AIDS. I just was curious about your reaction to that. Yes, I mean, uh, let, let's just start with uh, clinically. Right. So, um, as you know, my training is really in infectious diseases. Um, right. I took on CFS later, but um, 
and but I still practice infectious diseases. So in the way of the opportunistic infections that we see associated with immunodeficiency, and in particular immunodeficiency that we see in AIDS, uh, in that form of acquired immunodeficiency, clearly we don't see those opportunistic infections in, in MECFS patients. So if we go by the no, clinical- None of them, let me stop you there. None, you see no opportunistic I, infections in chronic fatigue syndrome patients? In the way that they're defined, and, and I know exactly what I'm coming from and what I'm talking about, Right. Um, not in the way that we define them in AIDS patients. So I'll give you examples. The, in AIDS patients, we see a form of pneumonia called pneumocystis girovechi or, or pneumocystis formerly known as Carini pneumonia. Right. We see toxoplasmosis in their brains, uh, MAC in their leaf nodes, CMV cytomegalovirus causing retinitis in their eyes. So I want to make sure that, that we have the same uh, page, that we're in the same page, that we have the same level of information. So those opportunistic infections, exactly as I said it, as examples, I gave you pneumocystis, toxoplasmosis, mycobacterium medium complex, cytomegalovirus in the eye. Those infections are not, are not seen in MECFS patients. And, well, and I have seen both populations. I have seen the AIDS patients when they were being killed by these horrible opportunistic infections. Right. And I, has, and I, I see today, like every year as part of my job at Stanford, to see cancer and transplant patients with those same opportunistic infections. MECFS patients do not have that. So okay. if we... So you if can... We, you, I, yeah. Uh, excuse me, but... So you, you have a list of differences between AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome. Do you also yeah. have a, a list of similarities between AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome? Well, um, in the way that their immune system is dysfunctional, but for example, in AIDS, we, it's very clear that one of the key abnormalities is a depletion over a 10-year period um, of, of, of T cells that are CD3 positive, CD4 positive, the right. CD4 positive T cells that is depleted, you know, over 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 a decade period, and then they develop. This is in, in general, and then they develop these horrible opportunistic infections. We don't have a T cell depletion in 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 MECFS patients. Um, any so, alter, any alteration at all? In they're perfectly well, normal. They're perfectly normal. No, I didn't say MECFS patients are normal. Okay. Uh, you are asking me if there were similarities, and I just cannot find things like the opportunistic infections, like the CD4 T cell depletion. Is there any, um, depl is there any depletion or any dysregulation of T4 cells in, in CFS? There have been some reports, but it's not uniformly reported. It's right. not a homogeneous. One of the things that MECFS has suffered of is that because of limitations in funding, uh, you tend to have reports in very small sample sizes, very small number of patients. So if you take 10, 20 patients and you do CD4s and you find a normality, can you really tell that that's, you will find that if you study 200 or, or 300 patients. Right. So so um, the, the MECFS patients, a, a good number of them have depletion of natural killer cells, for example, called so-called NK cells. Um, that has been 
reported relatively uh, commonly. But in AIDS patients, that's not a key feature of the immunodeficiency. There's no natural killer cell problem in, in AIDS? Not, not in the way that the virus targets them because they don't have the CD4 receptor. Um, you do have some natural killer dysfunction as the overall system. The CD4 cells, so-called helper cells, are key to sustain the work of the immune system. So not only you drop the CD4 cells per se, but also the, the helpful function that they do to other cells. So if you are asking about like, like one-to-one defects, for me it's hard to put them together, but I am not denying that, for example, in HIV, the spy that you control the virus and bring it to zero and their CD4 count goes back to normal and they leave. Now, these drugs started in 95, so they live 22 years or longer, because it's 22 years since we got those drugs, that they do have a significant inflammation. The HIV patients have a significant inflammation. And so, but the inflammation on them has not been defined the way we define the inflammation in MSCFS patients. Let me stop you there to ask you this question. Um, Did you test any AIDS patients for these 17 cytokines that are um, diagnostic for chronic fatigue syndrome? No, 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 that's what I said. No, there have been no studies. Like Our studies is unique, not just for MECFS patients, but it's for like any disease because of the sample size, we took almost 200 patients. Right. The number of cytokines we studied, we studied 51 on each of them. So... It is an example of research, not just for MECFS, and that has not been done for HIV. But HIV really has not needed it. I, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm, I hope that I'm not misunderstood when I said it's not needed because they found the cause in '84. It was found that HIV was there. The first drug came in '85, AZD, and the cocktails came in December of '95 with the protease inhibitors. Right. That's so, kind of that. You know, you like to use the word dogma. What you've just said is the AIDS dogma. So I'm just curious whether you're aware that people actually have questions about the AIDS dogma. Or is it, it or is that dogma that we should all believe? Is that dogma that should not be questioned? And what is the AIDS dogma? The dogma is that, um, that HIV is the cause of AIDS, that HHV6 is not the cause of AIDS. And, you know, when one looks at AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome, one notices that they have this one virus in common, and it's called HHV6. You know, and if you look at the work of Connie Knox, it's, it's very disturbing that it seems like HHV6 is doing all the work that HIV was supposed to be doing. But we're really not allowed to talk about HHV6 in AIDS because of the, dog, because of the dogma. But, I mean, the, the, the dogma has to go, the, the, the need to not have dogmas has to go both ways. So, right. so I think that is, you are presenting a position where HSV6 is the cause of AIDS. Well, I know, but, I'm wondering, I'm, you know, it's an open question is, you know, what is the role of HHV6 in AIDS? This, just it, like, the, what is the role of HHV6 in the, chronic fatigue syndrome? The, the role of HSV6 in AIDS, in my mind, has been settled by the experiments in, in simian models where 
if you add HSV6 to HIV to, in those cases, the simian immunodeficiency virus, SIV, there is a more rapid progression. So yes, HSV6 can precipitate the progression, but, but HSV6 is a virus that almost 100% of the population have, at least in the United States, and, 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 and not 100% of the people in the United States has, has AIDS. So I think that, that to me, that this is totally my position. It doesn't mean that it's my dogma. I have to, to believe in data, and the data to me is compelling that if someone has a sexual relationship and they have no AIDS before and after the sexual relationship they have the HIV virus, you follow their CD4 counts, they go down. And if you do nothing, they develop the opportunistic infections. And if they do, then they die. Okay, let me, you've raised an interesting question about sexual transmission. But, and I have to ask you, but, is, but, cro- is chronic... But, but is, in, patients, in patients who get the drugs, right. in patients who get the anti-HIV drugs that target specifically the HIV virus, all that is reversed. That's, I know, that is... That's, if, was a, if there was a drug for HSV6, yes. reverse that, yes. then I would be opening my mind to that possibility. But in these patients, the HIV drugs clearly reverse the, the, the immunodeficiency that is brought by the HIV virus. Well, let's, let's shift to a, a slightly different subject, which is sexual transmission of chronic fatigue syndrome. Is chronic fatigue syndrome a sexually transmissible illness? In general, no. No? So nobody has gotten chronic fatigue syndrome from their sexual partners? I didn't say that. I okay. said in general. In general, meaning I have couples that I follow over time Right. discordant ones, one has CFS, the MECFS, the other one doesn't. They have intimate relation for decades and the other partner doesn't develop it. And but, that's most of the times the situation. Occasionally you see a patient who gets genital herpes, right. not HSV6, HSV2, and following that they develop the chronic fatigue syndrome. So, but that's, that's the exception rather than the rule. So in my mind, again, uh, and I'm open to data, not, not to opinions, right. uh, it, it, the, what I see in my practice is that that is not the classic disease for uh, transmitted uh, sexually. Is it contagious? Is chronic fatigue syndrome a contagious illness? It's the same idea. It's the same idea that occasionally you see someone who their disease started when they got a new partner. Um, and, and occasionally we see the parent and then the daughter or their children developing the chronic fatigue syndrome. But there is no data that is about to come out from our group showing that there are certain genetic L- uh, traits, certain genetic uh, uh, elements that predispose patients to have chronic fatigue syndrome. So I think is the combination of an infectious agent combined with a genetic predisposition that leads to the disease, which will explain why people have herpes uh, in many forms, including HSV6, but only some develop the problem and others do not. So you're you're saying under certain conditions, chronic fatigue syndrome is contagious? Well, but you will have to share the same genetic predisposition. And that might explain why it's more common in families, for example. So you don't think it could spread from one person in one family to another person in another family. Okay. We, we, we don't see that. The, the, the one big, big question mark there is that there have been some 
outbreaks, but the outbreaks have been isolated and sporadic, like in LA, in North Carolina, in the UK, but we don't see those outbreaks happening every year or every two years with some periodicity. So I, I think it's a it's a mix of how how high is the inoculum of the pathogen, how how much the person gets that's well known in infectious diseases. It's a um it's a it has been in many, it's supported by many experimental animal models. The more you give out the organism, the more severe is their immune response. And also is the other factor is how is that immune response amplified by the genes of that individual. So if you were if you were the head of the Centers for Disease Control and you had to tell the American public about chronic fatigue syndrome, you would reassure them that it's not really a contagious illness. It, it's not in the in the in the traditional terms. So it, it's, it, it's, it's, untradition, it's untraditionally contagious. No, it's not what I said. Okay. I like if a patient comes with tuberculosis in the clinic, right. we have to isolate them with respiratory measures. Um, and then if a patient comes uh, with a dripping uh, discharge in their genitals, then we have to advise them that they could transmit that to others. And I don't see that here. I, I don't think that the MECFS patients need another a stigmatizing feature to be to be to be to tell the people for for whoever becomes the head of the CDC but for that person to tell people that this is contagious and then set up a whole set of unnecessary uncalled for panic and and stigmatize these patients for that they have enough enough stigma to give them another one but that I mean either it either it is contagious or it isn't contagious right it's not a matter of, it's not a matter of it's not a matter of making people feel better about something no you but want it's to a matter do. of not putting giving a stigma that they, that is not that is not reasonable that is uncalled for why are we gonna make them contagious when the data and and years of seeing these patients in clinics clearly show that it's not now, if you if you ask the question, could it be transmitted through blood transfusion? That I don't know. And probably I would say we have no data to say it is or is not. So blood transfusion should not be given by, by CFS patients. But for you to tell me that someone will need to say, based on what we know of the disease, that it could be contagious through respiratory means, contact, physical contact, or sexual contact, I don't think that that's correct. And, and that's that's, that's based on the data that I have. If someone has data to the contrary, I would love to see it, but that's unfair, that's unreasonable, and right now, 2017, is unscientific. Well, I mean, the original, you know, the famous doctors in Incline Village who you know, Paul Cheney and Dan Peterson, they both said it was obviously contagious when they were dealing with the outbreak there. Did, were they just crazy or wrong or... I, I think they were responding to the fact that there was an epidemic in their area. So right. they were right, cautious, they, they, they are great doctors. Um, have you asked them now if they think it's contagious at this level, right now, at this stage? I don't think so. I don't think that Paul, I, I think he stopped seeing patients, but I don't think that when he was seeing patients, that he would be asking patients to wear a mask uh, or to not have, uh, you know, contact, shake hands, so that's what we do here, at least if you're going to do it right. I mean, if you're going to say it's contagious, but you don't follow that with the right measures, you're really not doing anything other than 
stigmatizing the patients. But here at Stanford or any well-regarded hospital, if you say that something is contagious through the respiratory route, we have a series of measures. And depending on how is the level of contagiousness, you have to institute them from a mask and what type of mask to a gown to gloves, etc. That is not applies to MECFS patients as far as I know. Well, you know, it's interesting because your 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 test for 17 cytokines could now be given to everyone working in a hospital and you could actually track um the progression of the illness if you know if it actually were to spread you know among healthcare workers if you you see you follow my logic here that that you it's, you it's, you it's, you, it's, you, in, you in a way have now provided it's a not, way it's a, not the right thing to do it's not the right you don't do tests to people who are healthy that's not a good way to spend health resources, and that's not good medicine. But don't you want to know? If, I mean, if I'm a, if I were a nurse or a doctor, if the person you're is asking, healthy, you're asking if the nurses and doctors, healthy, you do not do tests to them. If you if you if you are a healthy person, you do not. That's the wrong way to spend health resources that are so scarce these days, and and for the healthcare system in the United States, which is completely wrong. And it's costing north of a trillion dollars. That would be the wrong way to go. But how do you protect? How do you how do you prove to nurses and doctors who you're asking to work with chronic fatigue syndrome patients that they're not going to wake up someday with 17 cytokines that are dysregulated because they've worked with chronic fatigue syndrome patients? I mean, shouldn't they at least be you know warned that you know this is potentially under certain circumstances, as you say? A transmissible or can, contagious illness. I mean, from a public health point of view, most healthcare workers are always concerned about, you know, contracting illnesses from the patients they care for. We know that from the AIDS epidemic. I mean, are they being sort of left in the dark about what's really happening with chronic fatigue syndrome? It's not contagious uh, for the history that we have and the epidemiology. And the principles of that are applied to contagious illnesses should not be applied to MECFS patients. And please feel free. I mean, that's what I can tell you based on what I know and what I have seen and what I have studied. But always feel free to ask other people. You, you, you are not going to get me to say that it's contagious. That, that's not what the data supports. I mean, would you be shocked if the data starts to support that? With that, but, but, just... where the, but where is the data? I, I mean, I've seen patients for 13 years and I shake their hands and I give them a hug and and many th- I examine them and I open their mouths and, and and so this is not the this is not a good this is not a good way to to uh, help these patients and and to say that they are contagious my god that would be so devastating without any data that's not the right thing to do. Well, you read Hillary Johnson's book, Osler's Web, there's, and there's quite a few um, pages in that book devoted to the transmission and in families, in schools, in uh, orchestras, and, and uh, on airlines. And you really, I mean, she really uh, does almost shoe leather, what could be called CDC shoe leather epidemiology, the kind of epidemiology the CDC did not do, you can find in her book. And I, I am aware that you've read her book. I think you, you admire her book, as a matter of fact. But you can't read her book without getting the solid impression that chronic fatigue syndrome is transmissible and contagious. 
I mean, it's, I don't think it's like, it's not the craziest idea. I mean, it's like, for some people, it's just a given. Um, it, no, no, exactly. I, I, I already, I already said that, and I alluded to the outbreaks. I mentioned the North Carolina, which is the symphony orchestra. So I, I, I don't know how else to tell you that those outbreaks, I, I mentioned the inoculum effect, I mentioned the genetics, I mentioned the possibility of concurrent infections, but that's not what I see in the disease overall. Just a, so, a couple more quick things, Dr. Montoya. I have, I've known several women with chronic fatigue syndrome, and they swear they know who they got it from, that they got it from a sexual partner. And they also are aware of the sexual partner's health issues. And often that sexual partner has similar health problems. So, I mean, you must be hearing this from some of your patients. Do, do none of your patients not say, you know, Dr. Montoya, you know, I think I got it from this relationship I had. I mentioned to you, I mentioned to you already uh -huh. that there are instances where the patient says that they have a new sexual partner and that's where the disease begins. And even more, they get her genital herpes too, not HSV6, genital herpes too. And then the disease begins there. And then when we suppress the her genital herpes too, the symptoms abate when they are, it's not just suppressing the virus, but they have to um, adjust their life while they're recovering and have some lifestyle choices. But the drug clearly leads to a full recovery. I said that, that that is there, but that doesn't make CFS a classic sexually transmitted infection or disease. So you don't warn any of your patients that they could give uh, CFS to their future sexual partners? No. no. Okay. One, one last question, and you've given me more time than I even expected you to give me. I'm very grateful. Um, is, is I want to just to go over the 17 cytokine thing again in terms of AIDS. Um, do you, if, if you were to find those exact 17 cytokines um, dysregulated in AIDS, would you be surprised? Would it mean anything to you or would it be of just no interest? I'm just curious about that. No, it would be fascinating to find them. Um, you, you, you haven't, I think, asked the right question about AIDS versus uh, CFS, but, but because I, I think that there is the potential of, of, of a third player in ME-CFS. It's not for sure HIV, but it could be a third pathogen that could share the um, characteristics of HIV, could be one that shares the characteristic of herpes viruses, could be a uh, kinetic form of the two, like in an area of the uh, Hillary Johnson's book is, is nicely described. So I haven't said that it's not that, but it doesn't mean that it's transmissible through physical, skin, respiratory, sexual contact, because there are compartments in, in, in humans that are not accessible to either testing, that are easily accessible through testing, or that are not readily available for contact transmission. So, so I, I think that you are asking, the, this is my humble opinion, you are asking the wrong questions about, about AIDS versus, versus CFS. So I don't see any evidence that it's a human immunodeficiency virus, that, that it's a retrovirus in the way that it's transmissible easily through 
co contact surfaces or blood or sexual secretions. I don't, don't see the evidence for that, but I haven't said that there is no possibility that something similar can be in a body compartment that when a major infectious load gets to the patient, that can be reactivated and that could trigger and perpetuate chronic fatigue syndrome. And we are looking for such a for such an agent. Have you made any progress? We are looking for it. I said we are looking for it. Um, I have to ask one little, uh, one last question, which is, um, what about the role of endogenous retroviruses? Like, no, that's what I was referring to. That's okay. what I was referring like herf K eighteen, which is induced right. by HHV six, is that which right. acts right. as a super right. antigen? Is that something you're at all interested in? Or yes. we are looking for. So we are looking for that or something like that, correct. Oh, but that doesn't make endogenous retroviruses, doesn't make, if we ultimately find that, and I'm collaborating with another group at Stanford whose their primary interest is another disease where they found inflammation and they found endogenous retroviruses as, as the trigger of the inflammation for that disease. And so, so I, 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 I am very aware, and we are in that lead, we're following that lead, Could but that's a completely separate story. It, 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 putting endogenous retroviruses, the same implications clinically and epidemiological as HIV, I'm sorry, it's crazy, it's, it's, it's ignorance, because it's, it's completely different territory. So yes, we are looking for endogenous retroviruses. Yes, we are looking for another pathogen. Yes, we're looking for HSV6 for an unknown pathogen. And, and, the, and the novelty in what we are trying to, to, to do because we believe that people try hard, but they couldn't find it, is, is going to compartments that people have not been tapped before. They have not been explored before. Right. And, and I think that that's where we, will, we may strike goal is, is by going to those areas, to those places. Uh, right. But that, if we find in those places, it will explain why it's not contagious, but it could explain why in certain groups, suddenly everything, you know, several people reactivate those areas. Those, those areas. Um, Dr. Montoya, I have to thank you for the most interesting interview I think I, <laughs> I've ever conducted in my life. Um, well, can I tell you something? Yes. This is the most interested interviewer and interview that I have had in my life as well. <laughs> well, then I hope that means you will do it again. And um, there's going to be a lot more to talk about in the coming years because of your work. So uh, yes. I, I, thank and, you again. And I trust you because you've come across extremely smart and well uh, supported. Um, don't misquote me, please. I, I'll I won't. I won't. And, um, and because then I, I'll be happy to do this again. Yes. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Take, Take care. Charles. Bye. Bye. Okay. Well, all I can say is, wow, that was a real interview. I have my disagreements with Dr. Montoya, but I think that he is a pretty cool customer, so to speak. There is little doubt that he is now the major player in his field. But while I think he is making important contributions to chronic fatigue syndrome research, like many people in science and medicine, he may not realize the scientific and political implications of his research. Dr. Montoya said that he doesn't think chronic fatigue syndrome is contagious except under certain circumstances. If you can explain his theory of contagiousness or non-contagiousness or quasi-contagiousness, then you are a better person than I am. If I had more time to talk with him, I would have told him that people who cover this story closely know that a number of chronic fatigue syndrome researchers themselves have chronic fatigue syndrome 
and seem to be doing everything they can to keep it quiet. It's a big open secret. There's a kind of conspiracy of silence among researchers about themselves being victims of the contagiousness of CFS, and that strikes me as a very big part of the counterproductive craziness of this illness. I should have asked Dr. Montoya if he has tested all the people who work at Stanford on chronic fatigue syndrome with his 17th cytokine test to see if their cytokines now show signs of an underlying chronic fatigue syndrome infection. That just might settle the contagiousness issue fast. You could say that Dr. Montoya has given the world a 17th cytokine epidemiological tool which can track the contagiousness of chronic fatigue syndrome. I think that many doctors and nurses who feel like they got CFS while working on their jobs will not just settle for Dr. Montoya's complicated and cockamamie pronouncement that CFS is not contagious, but does seem to break out in clusters. Now healthcare workers can have family members tested for Montoya's 17 cytokines to see if they have brought chronic fatigue syndrome home from the hospital with them. Also, lab workers working on CFS will be able to test themselves on a regular basis for the 17 cytokines to see if they contract CFS from their research. The Centers for Disease Control should probably lead the way by giving all their employees the Montoya 17 cytokine test to see how many have chronic fatigue syndrome. Then they should give all employees a 17 cytokine test every couple of months so they can track the possible spread of chronic fatigue syndrome in the workplace. And of course, they should test the families of CDC employees to see if, when, and how CFS spreads from the CDC workplace into the families of CDC employees. The CDC might want to give everyone in Atlanta the Montoya 17 cytokine test to see how extensively the illness has spread in the community. This would perhaps be the biggest contribution the CDC has ever made to public health. The CDC might also want to use some of Montoya's drug recommendations as prophylaxis in the workplace to control the spread of chronic fatigue syndrome, the same way they are urging gay people and others to take prophylactic treatment for AIDS. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found this interview as interesting as I did. I'll have more to say about Dr. Jose Montoya's groundbreaking research in the weeks ahead. If you want to keep this show alive, please just buy Truth to Power or any one of my other books on the politics of chronic fatigue syndrome and AIDS at charlesortlib.com. That's charlesortleb.com.